All right, how's everyone doing this morning? All right, yeah, is it almost summer? It's starting to feel like it, right? I don't know what that means for you. Like the pools are open, or they're about to open. School's about to be out. Vacations are planned. The kids are heading to camp, which gives mom and dad a vacation for maybe a week. Uh, guys, here's what I want to tell you. If you're new or you're watching online, you're in the lobby, you know, I want to tell you about our weekender because the weekender, we got one coming up next weekend. That's May 20th and 21st. And by the way, that's how you go from, uh, you know, the crowd to connected and committed here. And let me just tell you that weekender is to help you not have the summer slump spiritually. I mean, that can happen, right? Where, I don't know, at the end of the summer, you're in the exact same place you are now spiritually. And that doesn't happen to happen because of the weekender. Now, let me just explain the weekender for a moment, because if you're new, again, this is for you. Uh, if you come around our church for a while, here's just the truth, and this is true of any church with more than 150 seats in it, and we have more than 150 seats in here, okay? So this is, just, this is just a psychological, sociological fact. When you have more than 150 seats in a room, the worship service can no longer be the main place and point of connection for you to have a relationship with. Now, I wish it could be. Now, you may see somebody here that you know, and you may talk to them, and that'll be great. But, but when you get more than 150 people in a room, the, the main point and place of connection needs to go to the Sunday school classroom, which we don't have, or the community group, which we have. So the weekender, here's what the weekender is. It's how we continue to feel small and stay small, even as we grow big, okay? And some of you, you've been coming around for a while, and I love you, and I mean this in the most loving way, but you have been standing on the front porch peering into the house, Okay. You've been looking through the windows, it's getting just a little weird, okay? And we, we wanna, the, the weekender is an invitation to say, come on inside, let's sit around at the dining room table, let's have a conversation, let's see if you wanna be a part of this church family. Okay, so that's the first thing I kinda wanna say about. Second thing, and you guys can turn to James chapter three, but I got one more housekeeping issue kinda for us as a church, um, and it's that, you know, we're, we're, we've been on, at least for our church, we've been on the other side of COVID for a long time. We brought back almost every element of our service, including more recently, Communion, but today we're bringing the final element of our service. You've been asking for them, the offering buckets. They're coming back, woo! Yeah, you're excited, okay? And you may go, why are we bringing them back? Some of you go, I never knew we had them. We haven't had them for two years. And, and let me just say why we're doing that, right? Never miss a moment, right? The, so so the, the offering buckets are our commitment to reduce friction and remove barriers and make it easier for you to give or get connected. Right, so like if you're new and you don't wanna be known, there's nothing we can do about it. You're wearing a baseball cap, you put sunglasses on, you come during the second song, you leave after the sermon, I, don't, I can't help you. But if you wanna get connected, you, you could drop a connection card in the offering bucket every week now. You can drop a prayer request in and you can go from being unknown to known, so that's great. Um, also, we just wanna create a moment to respond. So what Christians have always done is the word has been preached and then we all respond. And how do you respond? Well, you sing and you bring. You know, it's your words in your wallet. And that's what, just what we've done. So we figured let's create a moment. Now, for some of you, the, the bucket's gonna pass by and it's gonna be an opportunity for you to put a check in. And, and, and if you're under 40, you go, what's a check? Uh, a check is Venmo for old people. Uh, you know, like, everyone under 40 goes, oh I, oh, I get it, I get it. Okay, yeah, that's what a check is. Okay, so for some of you, it's gonna be an opportunity to do that. For others of you, it, you know, it's gonna just be an opportunity to be reminded that you give online. Right, because as, when the bucket's, bucket gets to the very back, and sometimes the person looks in the bucket and goes, there's a $20 bill, one check, and two connection cards. How does everything get paid for? Well, it's because the vast majority of you give consistently online. And so this is just kind of a reminder. For others of you, and I hate to say this out loud, and it's, I don't know what to say except to say, when the bucket passes by, for some of you, it's gonna be a reminder that you're not generous. It's gonna be a reminder that you're not all in. It's gonna be a reminder that you're missing out. And I don't know where our church is on this, but here's what we know. Statistically, 37% of people who attend church give nothing. Zero. 
It's like, what? It's like, well, here's, the, here's just a question to ask you, okay? You just ask yourself this. If everybody gave like you, what would that mean for this church? For some of you, it would mean immediately our, bubble, our budget would be doubled or tripled. For others of you, we have to close the door down tomorrow because we can't do anything with nothing. And so here's what, here, look, our church is built on ordinary families who decided to put the church first in their finances. That's what's built our church. And what we want to just say is, guys, the reason that I'm talking about this with some passion is because we just sent a family to Laos. We're creating a global in footprint all over the world. Like we're not, I don't know where you've been in the past, but let me just tell you this. We're not playing church. We give away 500 grand this year. That's a cardiologist's salary. <laughs> and we just give it all away. And so our challenge is if, if Two Cities Church is your home, would the church be your favorite charity? Would you say, man, I love what the nonprofits are doing. I love what the parachurch ministries are doing, but the church is my favorite charity. And we want to create an environment here because a lot of people, every once in a while, someone goes, well, I don't know if y'all need the money. It's like, well, okay, we do, okay. <laughs> but think of it as an investment. Think about it in the eternal investment. We want the ROI on, on the investment in the kingdom of God through Two Cities Church to be so high that you go, I gotta be a part of this. So let's pray for that, and then we're gonna dive into James. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to respond. That's what you, God's people have always done. The word is preached, and then we sing and we bring. Lord, I, I just pray that we would have a culture, and I believe that we do have this, a culture of generosity, not a culture of stinginess, and a culture of generosity is just unbelievably contagious, but so is stinginess. Lord, and we just pray to have an abundance mindset. Lord, do you own a cattle on a thousand hills? You also own the thousand hills. You own everything, Lord. Many people don't give not because they're stingy, but because they're scared. Lord, would you give us an abundance mindset? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, type two, turn to James. That was all, you're like, that was all introduction, yeah. Okay, James, chapter three, verses 13 to 18. Guys, we're gonna be in this book until, well, we'll start a new book and you'll hear more about that. That's gonna be on Father's Day. I'm real excited about our next series, but we're gonna be in this book for several more weeks. James is Jesus's little brother. I don't know if you had a little brother. Uh, Jesus had a little half brother, James, and he was a blue collar guy. And James, probably like you, has some hobby horses. Do you have some hobby horses? Do your wife know about them, right? Some pet projects, some passion projects, some things that you love to talk about. Well, James is the same way, right? So uh, we won't go into these today, but suffering's one for James and, well, money's one for James and prayer's one for James. We're actually gonna hit prayer two more times before the end of this book. And an impartiality's certainly one for James and going through suffering's one for James. But if you had to go, James, what's your big topic? It's wisdom. We, we call this series Faith IRL, which means faith in real life, but you could think of it in this way, wisdom in real life. And we said this, there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, right? Uh, you can get the knowledge from the world, but you're not supposed to get wisdom from the world. And let's think about that for a moment, okay? I'm not gonna re-preach the sermon I preached six weeks ago on, on wisdom and knowledge and when, when James first talked about wisdom. But, but to say this, uh, John Calvin, famous Christian guy, he basically said, he said, guys, it's okay to get knowledge from the world. He said, thank God for it. He said, most of the economics and most of the math and most of the sciences and most of the medicine we got from non-Christians and it's common grace and we thank God for it. And if you go to you know, university and you have bosses and you go to public school, it's like, man, the chance that the most of the things you're gonna learn are you're gonna learn from non-Christians. Wisdom, we can't get from the world because wisdom is what do I do with the knowledge? Wisdom is the ethical structure. Maybe that's the way to think about it. 
Wisdom is the value system of my heart. What should I do with all of this knowledge? Wisdom is what do I do in the gray? What do I do when there are multiple good options? And so what James is gonna do today is he's gonna give us two views of wisdom. I'm about to read the passage. And he's gonna say one wisdom is above and the call is to look up. The other wisdom is from below. He said one wisdom looks like selfish ambition and jealousy. And the other wisdom, he says, is full of meekness. And then he's gonna say, he's gonna show you one of them leads to disorder in your life and one leads to order. So if you take notes, kind of the, the it's, it's where does wisdom located? What does it look like? Where does it lead to? Okay, let, that's all uh, where we're headed. So let, let's read uh, James chapter three, verses 13 to 18. All right, here it is. Here's what he says. Who is wise? So let me just ask you, are you wise? I mean, I don't know if you can answer that for yourself. I mean, would your kids call you wise? Would your friends call you wise? Would your spouse call you wise? James starts out and goes, is anybody out there wise? The church sure, sure needs some wise people. Okay, who's wise and understanding among you? Here it is. By his good conduct, or literally by his good life. Isn't that what you wanna live? If you're rightly oriented in the world, wouldn't you wanna live a good, good life? He says, by his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But, here's the counter vision. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and by the way, they're twins and sisters. They're always together. And in fact, that, those two are gonna be mentioned again in two verses later, just follow along. In your hearts, that's where those things come from. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. So the first one's located above. But it is earthly. Look at this. Look at this <laughs> evil trinity, evil triad. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. For where jealousy and every, or for, sorry, uh, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. This is the closest, by the way, we get to James' um, list of the fruit of the Spirit. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's go back to verse 13. I just wanna look at this together. We're gonna unpack this for the rest of the time. Here's the first thing. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? And I told you literally by his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So what is the good life? I mean, you know, what, what, would, what would the culture say the good life is? It's interesting because the Bible has a definition of the good life and it's called meekness. And you go, what's meekness? Is meekness weakness? Is meekness, I'm afraid of conflict and I'm afraid of controversy and I kind of hide and I hibernate. That is not meekness, that is weakness. Meekness is strength under control in service of others. It's like, man, if you're rightly oriented in the world, that's what you would wanna do. If you're serving Christ and you're looking to Christ, you go, wouldn't that, isn't that the good life? Because by the way, the good life is the life that Jesus lived. You're supposed to live your life. Maybe if you hear nothing else I say this morning, you're supposed to live your life the way Jesus lived his life. So two weeks ago, we said, we said that he, Jesus is the object of our faith. We, that was about you know, trust and faith and we looked at him. But the, the theologians say Jesus isn't just the object of our faith, he's also the pattern of our faith. He's who we follow. So this, this whole idea of the good life. Now, here's what's happened. In America today, the good life has changed, right? What was the good life for builders, the builder generation? 
Well, they got back from World War II, and the good life for them was, could I buy one small house? Could I live in it for a long time? Could I have as many kids as possible? Could I work one career? It's like a whole generation did that. The greatest generation did that. We thought, well, that was the good life. And then the boomers came along. And they said, well, we'll basically do the same thing, but we'll make more money and have less kids. And we'll live in the suburbs. And that happened. And then what happened is the millennials came around. And we're all confused about the millennials, okay? I, I, am, a, I am, for the record, a geriatric millennial, okay? I'm as old as you can be and be a millennial. Amen. Um, and someone said amen. Okay, so here's the thing about millennials. Millennials and Gen Z and Gen X, the good life has changed. And this is why parents are so heartbroken. This is why some of you are so heartbroken. Because your boomer generation good life is very different. You, you wanted your kids to have the life you're having. Well, why don't they want to get married? And why don't they want to buy a house? And why don't they want to have kids? And why don't they want to live near me? And why don't they want to stay in the same city? And, and the millennials and the Gen X and the Gen Z, it seems to be the good life is about autonomy and authenticity. Those are their values. I want to be the true me, whatever that means. And it's going to take me 20 years of discovering my passions and my true inner self. And, and then I want, I, and I, want to, I want to go do whatever I want to do wherever I want to go. Like I saw this firsthand last week. I wasn't preaching. So on Saturday, I went down and I watched the new soccer team in Charlotte. Anyone else been to any of those games? Yeah, both of you, I see you, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I thought. I went down there, I was like, well, no one's gonna be here, this will be great. It's like, it'll be easy, we'll see professional soccer, and I pull in, and there's people everywhere. They're all wearing blue, and they're all out at the bars, and parking was $40. I know. <laughs> that's, I was like, what's going on here? So parking's $40, and, and then I get into the stadium, I'm like, it's at, you know, it's at the Panther Stadium. Like, they're not gonna be able to fill this. And, and, and it's true, the upper, upper deck wasn't, was closed. The rest of the whole stadium was packed. And I don't know all the reasons why, but I'm like, oh, this is it. Because a bunch of millennials and a bunch of Gen Xs, they, they, they're not even from here. They're not even from here. They all moved here to be a part of something. They all bought and rent places downtown. And so, of course, they can get 40,000 people now to show up when a new team shows up. Because people just want to be... They want to try new things. They want new experiences. They want to meet new friends. It's like, well, guys, what we have to do as Christians is, is right here. We have to live a good life. We have to live a different, better life than our non-Christian family and friends. We have to live a higher quality of life. Like, I'll tell you one other quick story about this. Um, there's a, you guys have all heard of, heard of Dolshevsky. Dolshevsky, his final book, uh, The Brothers uh, Karamazov. Um, it was his final book that he wrote, and what's interesting is in that book, he's got these two brothers, Ivan and Eliosha. And Ivan, when, when, when Dostoevsky would write, he was a Christian, when he would write these books, he would make the villain and the person who thought different than him, he would make that person have the strongest arguments ever. So Ivan is an atheist, and Ivan's a war hero, and Ivan's good-looking, and Ivan's super intelligent, and Eliosha's his younger brother, and Eliosha's a Christian. And when Ivan comes with all of his arguments and all of his intellect and all of his debates against God, Eliosha doesn't know what to do. And there's this moment in the book where Eliosha just says to himself, I have to live a better life than my brother. Like, what are you going to do against your like brother-in-law who's like so sophisticated and hates God and has a chip on his shoulder against Christians? And is smarter than you. Are you gonna argue with them? But probably, you could try, probably not. 
It's like, well, what if you just lived a better life across time? To where, and then when their life falls apart, because here's actually what I think is going to happen. I don't know this for sure. One of the reasons we're going downtown, we're excited about it, 13 acres. I've told you guys all about that. But one of the reasons is I think, and I'm not mad at anybody about this. I, I'm, I'm actually broken hard over it. I think there's a bunch of millennials and Gen Xers who are making unbelievably poor decisions that will not work across time. And they are going to be so aimless and so regretful and so broken in about 10 or 15 years. I mean, you don't want to meet somebody who, in, at 45 who's been you know, doing the wrong thing for 20 years and been lied to. And you know what? We're going to be there for them. And we're not going to say, I told you so. And we're going to say, we're just so glad you're here. And if someone didn't tell me, I wouldn't know. So we have to have the good life. Now, in contrast to the good life, which is a life of meekness, he gives us a, a, a counter vision. He gives us three words. Look at verse 15. He says this. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is, he gives three words, and I'll try to go through these quickly, but he says they're, they're, they're connected. He says earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So he says, guys, first of all, he, call, he calls you to look up, which is a good thing to think about because what does God say to Abraham as soon as he calls him? I need you to look into this, I need you to look into this guy. Like as soon as you get on mission, as soon as you have a relationship with God, you need to stop looking down, you need to start looking up, you need a bigger vision for your life. But he says, why does he say earthly? Because the earth is that which is below you. And when you're not living the good life, when you're not walking with God, when you're not living in community, when you're not repenting of sin, when you're not living on mission, all the things that Christians are called to do in the good life, you're actually living an earthly life and an earthly life is a subhuman life. When you sin, you actually live a subhuman existence. So Christians, we don't believe in Darwinian atheistic evolution, but we do believe in devolution. We do believe people can get worse across time. We've seen it in families. We do believe that generations can get worse and worse and worse and worse. And so he says, the first thing's earthly, uh, which means also I only have this earth in mind. The second is unspiritual. Unspiritual means I do not, I do not take into account that which I cannot see, which is how most people live, right? Charles Taylor, Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher. I know I'm quoting a lot of people tonight or this morning, but um, he's a Canadian philosopher, and he says, and this is helpful, he studied, he's old, he, he studied Westerners and Western thought and Western religious belief for a long time. And he said that he would define Western culture as that which lives in what he calls an imminent frame. I know, big phrase. He says, Westerners, but you need to know this, this is like, this is where your neighbor lives. This is where your coworker lives. This is where your non-Christian family lives. He says, it's the imminent frame. The imminent frame is we live in a box called materialism, and all that there is is what's in the box. And everything in the box must be explained by the box itself. And, and, and so it's this kind of materialistic worldview. At the same time, we live in this time where everybody's trying to be spiritual. Have you noticed that? Spiritual but not religious. And this is why, and I forget who first said this, but when you stop believing in the God of the Bible, you don't start believing in nothing. You start believing in everything. And it's very, very interesting. We, we live in a time where I believe that people are trying to meet, especially the younger generation, they're trying to meet all of their spiritual needs in physical ways. You know, we're not against CrossFit, but what is the obsession with CrossFit? It's like, well, for some people, CrossFit is their church. Their sanctification process is getting better at CrossFit. Their accountability group is their CrossFit. How else can we, you describe the absolute obsession with travel? My parents didn't grow up thinking they were gonna travel all over the place and see all these things. That's a new idea. It's very generational. Don't tell me it's not spiritual. <laughs> Don't tell me it's not, I, 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 
I love the creation. And the creation is crying out. It's interesting, there was one atheist, famous atheist from Britain. He said, I don't believe in God, dot, 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 but I miss him. Interesting. Charles Taylor says we live in a God-haunted culture. So we're, we, we are, it's earthly. The way that people live is it's earthly. It's only this earth in mind. They, they don't take into account what they can't see. But at the same time, you see the third thing it's called? It's called demonic. Now, as soon as I talk about demonic, we have to remember a couple things. One, Christianity is a supernatural faith. That's just what it is. But there's a difference between the ordinary demonic and the extraordinary demonic. Normally when I talk about the demonic, people are thinking about the extraordinary demonic. The exorcism of Emily Rose. Or the exorcist, right? Or someone appearing in your mirror at night. Or goo on your wall. Or, I mean, you know, or, or someone's head spinning. Like, I don't know what it is, like, right? But the Bible actually, so that in the Gospels, there's a lot of what we would call the extraordinary demonic, Jesus' interaction with demons. After the Gospels, with, when Paul writes, when James writes, when Peter writes, it's all what we call the ordinary demonic. So when, when, in, when Paul says, don't let there be a root of bitterness in your heart, lest Satan get a foothold. Oh, so a bitter heart is demonic? Well, who was the, who was the, first, who was the first bitter person? Satan! Who's the most bitter person? Satan. So it's like, of course. So he's talking about the, the, the worldview of most people. It's, it's influenced by the ordinary demonic. And, and now most people today, they don't believe in demons. It reminds me of um, C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, great book. It, it's a book where an uncle demon is writing to a nephew demon on how to tempt humans. And the nephew demon at one point, his name's Screwtape, he says to Uncle Wormwood, he says, he says, the guy that I'm, in, that, I've, that I'm in charge of, he says he's starting to maybe believe in angels and demons. And Uncle Wormwood writes back, I know the fix. He says, get him to think of a man in red tights with a pitchfork. If you can, get, since he will not believe in that, he will never believe in us. He's gonna show you now where that type of, that triad, that trinity, the, the earthly, the unspiritual, and the demonic, where it leads. And I showed you these words earlier, but this is where we wanna spend the rest of our time. It's jealousy and selfish ambition. Look at verse 14. Here's what it says. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which by the way flow from the unspiritual, earthly, and demonic uh, mindset, in your hearts do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So let's just talk about each of them. Uh, let's talk first about jealousy. You know, jealousy and envy are slightly different. Jealousy is, I want what you have. I want your car, you know, I want your house, I want your job, I want your salary. Um, envy is one level deeper. Envy is... I don't want you to have it. That's even darker. It's like, I can't have it, so I don't want you to have it. Now, what's interesting with jealousy, and, and I've talked about this, but it's been exasperated by social media, and I know, I feel like I talk about social media all the time, but it's just such a massive thing. For example, I, I don't know if you knew this. You know, every year, Time Magazine puts somebody on the front cover, okay? Uh, in 2006, they did something different, and guess who they put on the front cover? You. Well, I mean, literally, Y-O-U, you. And they said, the time person of the year in 2006, they said, was every American. Why? Because they said, this was in 2006. This was 16 years ago. 
they said it was what they saw the to be to be the beginning of the tipping point of social media. And it was when Facebook was getting really, really big. And MySpace wasn't. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's just, it's just that, but it was that moment where everybody was like, whoa, I'm going to take some, everybody was getting an account, kids were getting accounts, grandparents were getting accounts. It was the very beginning of social media, and what social media has done, and I always try to say this because it's just helpful for us to know this, when you look at somebody else's social media, you're looking at their sports center highlights. That's what you're doing. And why people get depressed is they look at other people's sports center highlights and they compare it to their everyday life. And it, so, so there was a, um, a count, I was reading about this this week and there was a counselor lady, she said that she's seeing more and more anxiety, depression, especially in girls, young women. Um, and she said, if I could name it, if I could put a new illness or new disease in, in, you know, out there, she said, I would call it comparisonitis. And it's really interesting because she says what, what it's, what's happening. I mean, by the way, guys, we're jealous of just everything, right? We're jealous of each other's kids and each other's kitchens, <laughs> right? Like, and, and everything in between. And they did a lot of studies on this, and I was very interested to see this because they asked the question, well, who are you most jealous of? Because maybe it'll tell us a little bit more about jealousy. And what they found out is that for the most part, for the most part, women are jealous of other women, not men. And for the most part, men are jealous of other men, not women. Not women. Okay, that makes sense. The, the second thing they found out is that you're most jealous of somebody, same gender, within five years of your age. And you might think, well, why was that? Well, it's because, well, think about somebody who's, somebody who's older. So say somebody's 20 years older than you, or 30 years older than you, and they have, they make a lot more money than you. It's like, well, you just factor time in. It's like, well, they're old, <laughs> you know. I've got 20 years, you know, or they have a nicer house, or they have a better family, or they take nicer vacation, who knows what it is. You're like, well, you factor time in. But what really is hard for us is people who are like us that are doing better than us, right? We, we uh, as I heard one guy say, we like to live in the land of Ur, smarter, better, faster, stronger, right? We, wanna, we, want to, we want to be that. In fact, you know, men don't wanna be rich. Men want to be richer than other men. And you'll see this. And, and so, well, here's a couple questions to ask to deal with your own jealousy as I'm trying to deal with my own jealousy. The first is, can you be a good friend? And here's what a good friend is. Can you be somebody that people can tell good news to and bad news to? So like, can people tell, so by the way, that's what a friend is. In the Bible, the first mention of friendship is Abraham was called God's friend and Abraham was called God's friend right after God told him a secret. It's like, that's what a friend is. A friend is, hey, no one really knows this about me, but I need to tell you. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you something and hopefully in return, you'll give me something and that'll be the beginning of our friendship. Well, can somebody come to you? I mean, really, honestly, could somebody come to you right after the service? They come up to you and they say, hey, I got an inheritance. Like, you know, my great aunt died and she left me a half million dollars. Or would your first reaction be like, I wish I had a great aunt. <laughs> this guy's life's gonna be so easy now. I wonder if he'll give me some of that money, <laughs> right? Can you be that? Can somebody come to you and say, hey, listen, my kids just got into private school? Or would you immediately be like, how do you afford private school? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been on Facebook or Instagram? You're like, how do their kids afford private school? 
or they're on vacation again. Honey, how much vacation does Bob get? How much vacation do we have? You know, it's just like, you, you have that. Can, can somebody come to you and say, I have a boyfriend? Or do they just know they can't tell you? Can somebody tell you that they're pregnant? It's like, man, you know, we, we, we want to be the kind of people that other people can share the great things about their life, and we're genuinely excited for them. Here's the other thing. Can somebody share with you bad news? And you may say, Kyle, why do you mention bad news? Because are you the kind of person that people can share bad news with, or are they concerned that you'll use it against them later? Have you ever done that? Have you ever someone, someone shared something like, well, I'll lock that away somewhere in case I'll need to know that, in case I need that information, in case they ever turn on me. I'll have something against them. Or maybe you're the kind of person who, when they're down, you might take advantage of them. They may realize, well, if I shared this with you and I, you realize my marriage was such a mess, maybe you would take advantage of that. I don't want you to do that. It's like, man, what, it, it, the, the opposite of that, guys, is we should be celebrating, we should be honoring one another. When, when my wife and I, were doing, we did premarital, when we were going through premarital counseling, getting married, our premarital counselor, uh, pastor, he's our pastor, he said, guys, when it comes, to, and I think this is true in any area, but let's just say for marriage. He said, when it comes to marriage, he said, never drop your pom-poms for one another. <laughs> you know, it's a silly illustration, but it's the, it's the opposite of jealousy. It's I'm cheering for you. I want you to win. I want you to be successful. You know, last week, Stephen was up here, and he, Pastor Stephen, he did a great job preaching, and afterwards, someone came up to me outside, and they said, you know, Pastor Stephen is so much funnier than you. <laughs> that really happened. <laughs> and and, I'm, and I, I don't have a, a pure, perfect or pure heart, but I genuinely, in that moment, I was like, yes! Like, I really think he's hilarious too, and I want him to win. In fact, my, my wife and I are often sitting on the front row, we're like, don't laugh too loud, don't laugh too hard, don't laugh too long. Because uh, the more you know Stephen, the funnier he is. And so it's just like, man, but, but what if there was a dark part of me, and this does happen in churches, that decided to never put somebody up here that I thought would be good, right? Because it's like, well, you don't want to do that. In fact, really, if I want to be real sophisticated and be evil, I just, I put people up here who I know won't be good, so you want me to come back. It's like, dude, you know, there's, there's just dark things that can go on in people's hearts. Instead, we want to be a hero maker. A hero maker is somebody who builds platforms for other people to stand on. You know, who lets their, you know, isn't, that, isn't that a great picture of it? I love it. And listen, this can happen in the church world, guys. In the church world, we, I mean, we can be the worst of us. Now, listen, most pastors start out when they're planting a church. Here's what they want. They want a big old church at the end of the day, and they want to have a cute little wife. And guess what they get? A cute little church. <laughs> I'm not going to finish the rest of that. <laughs> That's what normally happens, okay? All right, on, on to ambition, on to ambition. <laughs> uh, all right, so twice selfish ambition is mentioned. Now, ambition isn't bad in and of itself. In fact, we could use a lot more of it in the church. I don't know why. I, I don't know why the world is more ambitious than us. I just went back to Durham like a month ago, you know, was running through the city. I was there for a conference. And I just, I'm seeing the whole city just explode. And bars and restaurants and condos and coffee shops. And I'm just like, somebody here has ambition. Somebody here wants to do something. When I think of ambition, of course, we'll get there at the end. I think of the Apostle Paul. 
But if I think of, of somebody today that has ambition, I mean, Elon Musk. I mean, this guy starts PayPal with a friend, then decides to take all of the money from that and put it into Tesla. Now, if you'd ever think of like, what's one industry you should probably not go into? How about the car industry? It's like, man, how are you gonna make a difference? And that's a massive industry. You're gonna get into that industry and you're gonna do something different? And Elon Musk is like, I am. And then you're gonna take that car and you're gonna shoot it into space? which he also did. Have you noticed that all the billionaires are trying to go to space? Do they know something we don't know? But there's just, there's just ambition. Now, ambition is the willingness to work for a worthy goal. Now, the Bible is saying earthly wisdom is selfish ambition, which is the exaltation of self. But there's a great picture of servant ambition. Now, ambition has, I know I'm giving you a lot here, ambition has multiple components. When you think of ambition, there's a Harvard Business Review article that said there are three components to ambition. I found this helpful. Component one is what they call achievement ambition. Some of you are like this. I'm like this. It, you want to see things grow. You want things to get bigger. You want things to get faster. You want things to get stronger. You want the numbers to increase. It's, it's a results-oriented ambition. The second type of amb ambition is what's called a growth ambition. These are not, not my titles, they're their titles. Uh, they're a little confusing, but growth ambition is about you. You want to become the best version of whatever you're doing. Think Michael Jordan, I have to keep practicing. Why are you going to practice again? Why are you staying late? Why are you getting up early? It's like the ambition, not just that the Bulls would be the best, that I would be the best. And then there is what they call achievement ambition. So there is, sorry, I said the first one was called performance. Performance ambition is results. Uh, growth ambition is your personal getting better, and achievement ambition is um, rewards. I am so ambitious because I want a race, or I'm so ambitious because I want the corner office, or I'm so ambitious because I want the position that, hap that comes with, and the status that comes with being a C-level leader. Okay, so there, there's ambition. Now, ambition, this is helpful to know, and this will help some of your marriages, I think, or give you something to talk about. Um, there's a tension constantly between ambition and relationship. Um, you'll see this in marriages because ambition says we have to keep going. We have to make progress. There's a lot of things to do. And relationship, let's say it this way, ambition's about the future, relationship's about right now. Ambition is about breaking through barriers and ceilings. And relationship is about putting limits on things. And what you'll see in a marriage oftentimes is, well, you know, if you have two unbelievably ambitious people, they'll look up in 15 years like, we never had kids. I mean, that will happen. It's like, I forgot. <laughs> and you have two high-powered career people who are both just climbing the ladder. It's like, dude, forget it. I mean, what often happen is, in, 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 and I'm stereotyping here, but a lot of times in the, in the marriage, the husband will have lots of ambition for his career. And in tension to that, the wife will try to put, rightly so, limits I'd like you to be home for dinner. I'd like you not to miss our kids' baseball games. I'd like us to use all of our vacation this year. Right? And, and the, the ambitious person goes, oh, hold on, hold on, I could, I could do something different. We could make more progress if we didn't do that. And there's that tension. But I'll tell you, in 15 years of ministry, I, I have seen that most women uh, do not complain about their husbands being too ambitious. They tend to actually complain about their husband's lack of ambition. That's what I've seen, surprisingly. Lack of ambition to work, lack of ambition to lead the family, lack of ambition spiritually. So really, at the end of the day, there's, there's three options. There's, there's that you have no ambition, and I, and I hope that's not anyone here. 
you know, it's easy to pick on the person with no ambition. You know, they're covered in Cheeto dust in their mother's basement, you know. <laughs> right, with an Xbox controller, you know, something like that, in a, a large Coke, okay? They have, they have zero ambition, okay? That person's easy to make, you know, pick on. Um, but, um, but there is something that's happening where we don't know why, but, but, but particularly men, they're not getting their license. They're not, they're not going to college. People are not getting on career paths. The, the second type is selfish ambition. There's two types of selfish ambition, right? There's like the obvious selfish ambition that would be easy to pick on. Okay, let's just do it. The fraternity guy who's a womanizer, who drinks too much, who wants to be the coolest guy on campus. It's like, well, everybody looks at him and goes, well, it's so unbelievably obvious that you're all about yourself. The more sophisticated form is the form where you're doing good things for wrong reasons. You're just like, okay, yeah, I, I'm you know, doing... doing this thing over here, I'm heading to church, but here's my motives. And this is why the Bible's relentless with us because it comes always after our motives. And then the third is, is servant ambition. And servant ambition has two components. It's ultimately about God's glory and it's ultimately about people's good. That's servant ambition. Now, God's glory means that you exist to make the invisible God visible to other people. That's, I think that's exciting. You exist to make God look great. Like every once in a while, church planners will come and they'll say, hey, we wanna plant a church. And we'll say, why do you want to plant a church? They're like, because we want to make Jesus famous. I'm like, here it is. <laughs> I mean, we don't need you. I mean, because if your job is trying to make you, dude, Jesus is so, especially in America, he is famous. Now, do you want to make Jesus loved? That'd be different. Known in a personal way, seen as Lord, Savior, and treasure. The, the second thing is, so it needs to be about God's glory, and then others good. Now, I... I I had an experience, when we, when we planted this church, I don't think I've told this story. When we planted this church, there was 30 of us that moved uh, here to, uh, from the Raleigh-Durham area in Winston. And we had a, a business guy from the summit, that's the church that sent us. A business guy from the summit called me. And he said, man, I got an idea. He was a successful business guy. He said, I'm gonna work with a couple other guys. And what if every time the summit plants a church, we figure out how to start businesses near that church? He said, I could get together, we could get creative, we could try to do startups in cities where Summit's planting churches because what do the 30 people who, I mean, when I moved here, it was easy, I had a job, <laughs> right? Most people, it's like, I was the pastor, I was moving I, to take this job. Everybody who moved with me didn't have a job or needed to find a job here. And so I just thought, wow, what, what in it? Now, was that guy gonna make money on those businesses? Of course, but what was his heart? Man, I love the mission of the church and I wanna help people. Let me show you where all this leads, and we'll be done. If you look at me at verse 16, it says this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. Let me ask you this. What in your life is out of order? And when you look back on it, is it not selfish ambition and jealousy? How many people, their whole financial life is out of order because of those two things? Right, because they bought things they didn't need with money they didn't have to impress people they don't like. Right, and all of a sudden, this is why, and, and it's interesting, see, when there's disorder in your life, by the way, you can no longer be a blessing and benefit to other people. This is why 90%, this isn't in our church, this is a national statistic, 90% of people who consistently give to a local church have zero consumer debt. It's like, man, well, their life is in order. Right, and some of you, I don't know each of your stories, some of you, your lives are so unbelievably dysfunctional, it's hard for you to make it to church. 
it's hard for you to make it to community group. You can't show up. It's like, well, me and the wife are fighting again. My kids are a mess. And I'm living a double life. It's like, well, of course you can't make it to community group. And I got my kids doing 15 things because I'm selfish and I need to vicariously live through them. So our whole family's out of whack there. And I'm working way too much, which is putting a massive strain on my marriage. But it's all selfish ambition. And I'm slightly jealous of some other people. It's like, well, the opposite of that is peace. Look, it's mentioned three times. But the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable. Peace is the Old Testament word for order. That's what it means. Not rigid and wooden order, but like harmony. Like order, here's what it means. Right priorities. Things are in the right place. Something is at the center. Something is on top. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness, in a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He, he gives us, here's what he says at the end of the day. He, he gives us the image. Are you going to look up for wisdom and live the good life? Or are you going to look down and live an earthly, unspiritual, demonic life? Are you going to be somebody who has jealousy and selfish ambition? Or are we gonna be a place where we honor one another and where we have godly ambition? And I just wanna say, man, what we need is we need every man and every woman and over, across time, every child in this church having a godly ambition for their life. I mean, that's what, we, isn't that what you wanna pass on to your kids? It's like, so when they go off to college, it's like, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you major in. I, I, I don't care. I want you to have a godly ambition for your life. It's like, well, where do you get it from? Well, let me show you. Because the, the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, I'll have this on the screen. At the end of his most famous letter, Paul, for the first time ever, kind of opens up and tells us about his godly ambition. Look what he says here. He says, and thus I make it my ambition. Here's what I'm willing to work really hard for. He says this, I make it my ambition. So it's an active decision to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So listen, Paul's vision was to go to the unreached, unengaged people groups. Here's what that means. No Bible, no believer, no building. And he goes there to the hardest places and preaches the gospel. And look what he says, look at this, verse 21. This, this will encourage you. It's like, Paul, where did you get this vision for an ambition? He says this, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. If you look, he's quoting the book of Isaiah. Paul, Paul says, listen, let me tell you how I got my godly ambition. It's not because I'm an apostle. It's not because something special happened to me on the Damascus Road, and when I, when I look back on my godly ambition, I, I look back on you know, seeing Jesus face to face. No, he says, he says, guys, I read something in Isaiah that touched my heart. So if you wanna have a godly ambition, I can tell you how to do it. You need to start reading your Bible and saying, God, what are you going to put on my heart from your word? Right, I remember, I remember being a brand new believer and I'm reading 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel and it's my first time ever reading the Bible and I read it and it says, David was a man after God's own heart. I thought, wow, what a verse. What a thing to have your life be about. It's like, you know, some of you, you just need to read something. I mean, you, you'll meet people. I've met people like this and their lives are wrecked by certain verses. They're just like, hey, it said, take care of widows and orphans. And so I quit my job and I took this other job and we're, we're my family. I, this guy emails me the other day. It's like, dude, his family of seven is like 
I don't even know where they are. They're somewhere in the world serving together. And he's just telling me the story. He's like, man, this happened, this happened, this Bible verse. It's like, whoa. Some of you, it just might be the Great Commission. You just read the Great Commission. You're like, this is burning in my heart. Jesus said, I'm gonna be with you. And he said, we should go to every place. And he said, we should make disciples. Some of you, it's gonna be like, you read a parable. You're like the good Samaritan. Maybe I could be like that. See, that that's what we need. We need people. The, the ambition arises out of scripture. I've got a friend. He says, when he reads the Bible, he uses the rush method. Read until something happens. Might be good for you guys to do. It's not okay to have no ambition. It's not okay to be passive. Let me just ask you a couple questions as you think about this, guys. What problem do you wanna solve? There's a lot of things wrong in the world and you could do something about it. Well, that would be great. What are you angry about? What bothers you? What are you upset about? What are you frustrated with? Some of you might have selfish ambition. Here's the great thing about being made in God's image. You can change your motive. You could say, oh my gosh, I've seen this before. I was making a lot of money for the wrong reasons. Now I'm just gonna make a lot of money for the right reasons, amen. <laughs> That's the unbelievable thing about being made in God's image. It's like, well, you, could, you could change your motive by the grace of God. For others of you, and this is a different category, you need to resurrect an ambition because life has been hard on you, right? I see this, I mean, the devil's number one strategy is discouragement for the Christian, right? Your sins are forgiven, you have the Holy Spirit, you're headed to heaven. It's like, okay, what's gonna happen to you? It's like all God want, or all Satan wants to do is discourage you. He wants to discourage you in your marriage, discourage you in your fight with sin, discourage you in your kids, discourage you with trying to evangelize your neighbors. That's what he wants to do. Guys, we want every person here at Two Cities Church to say, I want the good life but not the American dream, because that might be God's nightmare. But I want the good life. And the good life is a life where we honor one another and where we have servant-hearted ambition. Let's pray to that end. Lord, it's our prayer. Lord, we wanna live the good life. The Bible says, let our good conduct, our good life be shown in meekness, Lord. Strength under control in the service of others, Lord. Lord, I pray that every person in this room, no one can do it for them. They have to do it for themselves, that they would go to you, Lord. They would seek your face. They would go to the scriptures and they would get for themselves an ambition. Not a, not a selfish ambition, but a servant-hearted ambition. And as Paul said, I make it my ambition, that they would find a place in their life, a scripture verse where they say, I make this my ambition. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.